All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all this morning. We're going to continue to worship our God together as we study his word. So I hope you have one of these with you. Open it up to the first page. Still on the first page, Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to pick up where we left off last week, and I'm going to start reading in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth, God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth. Everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. So a new trend in social media began, I believe, in the year 2020, where you have a kind of before picture and an after picture. And the before picture says how it started, and the after picture says how it's going. And one of the first ones that I remember seeing whenever, around that time, was a picture of a before and after picture of an astronaut. And it said how it started, and it was a picture of him in black and white when he was about five years old, and he's in a cardboard box that says NASA is written on the side of the cardboard box. So that's how it started. And then under the words how it's going was him in the astronaut suit, in the shuttle, about to take off. How it started and how it's going, right? The Bible's account of how it started is right here in the opening pages of scripture. Genesis one to three, we not only see how it started, but we even see how it's going. We even get a sense of what happened once the fall took hold. What were the kinds of things that have been going on ever since that time, right? The Bible's account of how it started is telling us a a few really important things. These are foundational truths for a Christian worldview. And it tells us this, you were made by God. You didn't make yourself. God made you, and God knows you, and you are loved by God, and you belong to God. These are massive foundational truths that are like rocks under the feet of those who trust in the Lord. Now, here's the thing. Just so we know, our culture doesn't warm to the idea that we belong to someone. That is an increasingly unpopular idea because the culture's message increasing, with increasing volume is I belong to myself, no one else. I determine my own ends, right? And since I belong to myself, I am the only one who can set limits on who I am. I'm the only one who can set limits on what I can do. I live my own truth, right? This is a kind of self-designated view of humanity. And here it prevails in the culture in the West, particularly in America, in contrast to many places in the world where, you're, where you came from 
is significant in shaping you, what your parents are like, your father, your mother, what they believe in their values, your tribe, that, that matters, that, was, that had a shaping influence on who you are and who you expect to be in the future. No, not, not here. The only way to your authentic self is to cast off all expectations. Your, your parents' expectations don't matter, your, your tribe or where you came from, none of that matters, you gotta live your own truth. So that is the kind of new protagonist in literature, in movies, in, in TV, is you see the person who's carving their own place in the world. It's the new hero story is a story of self-discovery and self-mastery, but friends, the, the seeds of that philosophy are now bringing in the early harvest, and the early harvest isn't what was promised. Because the harvest is coming in and it's not a harvest of fulfillment and happiness. Sociologists are calling this the quote, burnout generation. Alan Noble in his excellently researched book, You Are Not Your Own, writes the following. For many modern people, every moment of the day must be spent on work, self-improvement, personal branding, making connections, optimizing, and side hustles. A life of unending and unrewarded competition and self-improvement through increased efficiency and optimization is overwhelming, depressing, and unsatisfying. Rather than bringing us closer to our humanity, it dehumanizes us at every turn, turning our intimacy into instrumentality and leaving us addicted, depressed, exhausted, lonely, and bored. And friends, here on page one of the Bible is the true origin story of the world. And it is a wonderful, to be sure, countercultural, but it is a wonderful word of news for us. And the news that comes right off of page one is you're not your own. You belong to someone. And that someone is God. And he's the one who made you and he makes beautiful things. And his design, if you live with the grain of the design of the one who made you and the one who is good, your life will move more and more toward flourishing. And so to a world that is absorbed in itself, a world that is absorbed in a message that's only leading to more and more exhaustion and deeper and deeper isolation, God on page one of the Bible says, have a seat, let me tell you where you came from. Let me tell you your story of where you began. So two points, how it started is point number one. How it started. So in the beginning, when God made Adam and Eve, and they are our first parents, we all come from Adam and Eve. In the beginning, God made Adam and Eve, and what do we learn? We learn this, first of all, we were designed for communion. We're designed for community, for communion. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So like God, we image bearers, have certain capacities that match his. Don't look exactly like, but there's a family likeness. There's something that we have that we can do that we can do because he made us in his image. He can do them as well. All right, so the first thing that we learn in verse 28, that capacity is this. You see, in verse 28, God blessed them and God said, you might wanna underline these words, to them. It's the first time you see the words to them. God doesn't just create human beings by his word, he speaks to them. He's interacting, he's communing with, he's walking in the cool of the garden, he's fellowshipping with these image bearers. We alone were made to hear and respond to God's voice. That's unique to us. 
as image bearers, as humans made in the image of God. Trees don't do that. Birds don't do that. Stars don't do that. Stars and trees and birds are pleasing to God. He made them and that day was good. They are pleasing to God, but nothing in creation can understand God and respond to God except us, human beings. My dog, our dog, Juke, he needs to pray, trust me. He needs to pray, but he doesn't. He's not wired for that. He's not wired or asked or commanded in scripture to be in this room. He's not forsaking the assembling of themselves together as is the habit of some by not being here. It's not his call. He's not called to hear and respond to the teaching of God's word. We alone are called to that. So that, that's how it started. We were designed for communion, but how it's going, you keep reading the Bible and what do you read as you turn page after page of the Old Testament is you read story after story of people hearing and responding to the voice of God. Some wonderful stories, like there's a story tucked back there in the Old Testament of, of a little boy named Samuel. He's gonna be a prophet. He doesn't know it yet. He's only about five or six years old and he's trying to go to sleep in his room next to Eli the prophet and he hears someone say his name, Samuel, and he runs in and says, yes, Eli, you called. And Eli says, I didn't call, go back to your room. And then he hears Samuel and he runs in. Eli, you called. Eli says, I didn't call, just go, go to sleep. And then the third time he runs in and he says, you called. And Eli finally clues in, the prophet of God finally clues in and he says, go back to your room. This time, if you hear your name again, say this, speak Lord, for your servant is listening. And this little boy hears his name spoken by God and God is calling him and he says, I'm listening. That's you thriving. You saying to the Lord with his word open on your lap tomorrow morning, you when we're teaching together or receiving God's word preached, it's your heart saying, speak, I'm listening. I'm here, I'm here to receive from you. You designed me for this. You designed me for communion with you. We're made for fellowship with God in Christ. We have access into God's presence so that we can come before him and do what? Cast all of your cares upon him, knowing he cares for you, so that we might be led by his spirit, so that we might be guided by and counseled by his word. Romans 8 even talks about this amazing mystery that when you don't know what, what to say in prayer because you're just that over your head, you're just there groaning in the presence of God, and, and Paul writes, the Holy Spirit intercedes for you. In the midst of your groaning, he is carrying you near to God and bringing God near to you. We're designed for that. Friends, Christianity is not some crusty religion. It's friendship with God. It's the nearness of God. It is wondrous, wondrous news. That's how it started. We were designed for communion. Second, we were designed to rule. Designed to rule. So the first words that describe what it means to be created in God's image are right there in verse 26. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then it says, they will rule. And that word rule is used on both sides of verse 27. Verse 27 is when God creates man, male and female in his image. Verse 26 says they will rule. Verse 28 says they will rule. So it's got this ruler sandwich so that we don't miss. You're created to subdue, to exercise dominion, to rule over creation. We were designed that way. The language of subduing 
and the language of dominion was used of kings. These terms, these very same Hebrew words that were used in the original language, they were words that described the work of kings. You remember last week, if you were here, we saw how God in days one to three was forming and days four to six was filling. So he's forming these realms in days one to three and then he's filling those realms that he formed in days four through six. What we didn't stop to notice last week is this. Each realm that God created was to be governed by a particular ruler. So he creates light on day one, the the heavens on day one, and then it's governed by the two great lights, the greater light and the lesser light. So the, the, the lights govern the heavens. They're over that realm, as it were. The skies and the waters on day two are governed by the birds and the sea creatures. The land on day three is governed by the land creatures. So you got these three realms, the heavens, the skies and waters, and the land. And when God creates man, the crazy thing is he gives man rulership over two of the three realms. So if you like org charts, you get your first org chart on page one of the Bible. And we are way up there because God rules over everything in the heavens and the earth. And then there, there's the, the, the heavens are ruled by the lights and we get everything else. We get this massive territory under us. The fish and the birds that rule over the air and the sea, they're under us. The land creatures that rule over the land, they're under us. We're called to subdue. We are, we are vice regents. We don't rule independently of the supreme ruler. We rule at his behest. We, we rule on his behalf. We're vice regents, ruling and subduing. You think about that word, subdue, for a second. So though everything was created good, everything apparently was not yet subdued. Otherwise, it makes no sense to say subdue anything. Everything was made good, but everything was not yet subdued. There were wild places out far beyond the boundaries of Eden. And just as we saw God creates the heavens and the earth in verse one, and then the Holy Spirit hovers over the chaos and the disorganized world in order to make it habitable for human beings, I think in a similar sense, what's going on here is God, as it were, hands the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve in a perfect state. But it would be their task in coming days under God to subdue the wildness of the lands beyond Eden and to make those places habitable, suitable for habitation, to make cities, to make cultures, to make music, to make gardens, to turn the wildness into something beautiful. So, which makes sense, right? You think about the command to be fruitful and multiply comes before the, the subdue part. And it's because Adam and Eve aren't gonna be able to subdue all those wild places, just the two of them. So be fruitful and multiply so that the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve will go further and further out and subdue the wild places for the glory of God and make the nature sing to God's glory, working as equal and necessary partners in the cultural mandate. You think about that word, subdue. Again, it's a word that's curious in this passage. It's a strange word. Why is God telling man and woman to subdue anything? Because that word, original word, subdue, translated subdue in in English, it's a word that has military overtones. 
When it's used in other places in the Bible, it's used in battle, it's used of war, it's used in the subduing of nations or the subduing of kings. So it's strange, right? You, you subdue an enemy, you don't subdue meatloaf, you don't subdue like a casserole, right? You, you subdue hostile powers. So it makes you wonder. When they hear the words, subdue it, are they thinking to themselves, is there an intruder here? Or is there an intruder on the way? And if you keep reading in the early chapters of Genesis, you know the answer is what? Yes, there's an intruder. There's a snake in the garden. And when he comes, conquer him. Subdue it. He even spells it out. Every creature that crawls on the ground, rule it. You're gonna cue the creature who's crawling on the ground in just a moment, and they're called to subdue it. When you see it, rule it. If the humans don't subdue it, they'll die. And here in God's first words, he tells them, when you see it, subdue it. In a moment, we're gonna see the contrast between how it started and how it's going in that particular area. But for now, we were designed for communion second, we were designed to rule third, we were designed with dignity. We were designed with dignity. So often, kings in the ancient Near East, they would set up statues, the, the word, the same word for image is the word statue or idols. It's the same exact Hebrew word. They would set up idols or statues reflecting themselves and they'd put it further and further out, let's say 20, 20 mile intervals and you've just got that king, a statue of that king further and further out to display to all the realms and all the inhabitants the signs of his rule. These statues told them, he set up these images to tell them who's in charge. Still true today in many parts of the world, ruled by monarchs or ruled by dictators or kings, where everywhere you turn, you're reminded he's in charge. In case you forgot, 30 miles ago, he's still in charge, right? It's these signs of who rules over this realm. And yet God's origin story for the world is just the opposite. There are no stone images. There are no idols. Don't make any graven image. Don't make any likeness of God because if you want to see a likeness of God, you just look at the person standing in front of you. We are the likenesses. We are statues animated by the breath of God, walking, living, breathing statues who display the God who rules over everything. You see how fundamentally different this message is. The truth of Imago Dei, so this doctrine of we were made in the image of God, it is massively important because when we get Imago Dei wrong, everything goes sideways. Everything in history goes wrong when we get page one of the Bible wrong. We get Genesis one wrong, we get a Holocaust. Get Genesis one wrong, we get chattel slavery and Jim Crow laws. Get Genesis one wrong, we get 62 million babies killed in the womb in less than 50 years. That's an Imago Dei problem. That's a page one of the Bible problem. Friends, having convictions to call out those and other evils isn't you misreading the Bible, it's you reading page one of the Bible. We're made in his image. So just think about everything that's downstream of your worldview. Your worldview drives the way you view everything in life. So let's just take two worldviews that are at odds from one another. If your origin story 
your dominant worldview is the survival of the fittest, you can kill a lot of people you don't want to be around. A lot of unwanted people can die because survival of the fittest is, is the chief doctrine, right? But if the origin story is, and God said, let us make man in our own image, you start saving life. You start preserving life. You start valuing life in all shapes and sizes and colors from the womb to the tomb. We are the people who value life, who save and protect and preserve life. That's what we do as Christians because we've read the first page of the Bible. Have you ever considered how radical this is that the way, think about it, that the way God would fill the earth with his glory would be by filling it with image bearers. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That is the extension of God's glory, is more, more image bearers in the world. The call to be fruitful wasn't a call to just make babies. (laughs) The call to be fruitful is not just a call to make babies, but to raise rulers. Generations of boys and girls who would extend the boundaries of Eden and turn the wildness into a garden paradise. This is this massive vision, a world becoming habitable under the rule of the sons and daughters of God. It's an awesome, awesome thing here. It's a radical origin story, how it started and how it's going. We rebelled and God's image was fractured. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time here. We're gonna look more closely at that when we get to Genesis chapter three. But Adam and Eve, our first parents, rebelled against God. They sinned against God. God had spelled it out, rule over every creature that crawls on the ground. And here comes the creature crawling on the ground in Genesis chapter three. And there is thick irony in the way the story is told. The creatures who are designed to speak are silent and the snake won't shut up. Everything is wrong. Snake comes in crawling on the ground. It's supposed to subdue everything that crawls on the ground. Instead of exercising dominion over the snake, they serve him tea. Sit down, tell us more about God. Tell us your theology. What's your read on this tree right here, right? Everything's upside down. How it started and here's how it's going. Since the fall, every human comes into the world with distorted cravings. Augustine, the great theologian, of the fourth century said that we come into this world with our hearts curved in on itself. We were were kings, but we act like gods or live like slaves. We either become tyrants or we live like slaves. And sometimes we try both of those before breakfast, right? We have the ability to do both of those things, to warp the image of God in all these ways. The image of God in humanity becomes distorted. You think about the distortion, right? It's like a mirror that's cracked. It still reflects, but the image is warped. In a similar way, it's still, the image is still there, it still reflects, but the image is broken, right? The, the leg is out of shape or something's wrong. The image isn't communicating everything that's true. You remember the original audience, right? The original audience to whom Moses is writing these words at that moment is the people who God had just rescued from slavery. They still had the marks of Egypt's whips on their backs. They still had the marks from Egypt's chains on their ankles and on their wrists. And imagine the effect of that generation of Israelites hearing the origin story and finding out we were kings. 
And they never told us for 450 years we were slaves with royal blood in our veins. We were made by God, we were loved by God, we're known by God, we belong to God. And his faithfulness, this would be the story they would have picked up on if they keep reading through Genesis. And his faithfulness has tracked us all the way back to Abraham and back from Abraham through the great flood and back from the flood all the way to Adam. He's been tracking us. Friend, the one thread that runs all the way through your life and all the way through human history, the one thread that is never broken is God is faithful. He is always faithful. He never breaks his promises. Hear this, every day of your life, every season of your life, you may not find life easy, but you will find him faithful. If you look to him, life won't be easy, but you look to him and you will find him faithful. Faithful tomorrow. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's faithful. Even after we blew it, he was faithful. Adam and Eve sinned, and you keep reading Genesis, and you find out human sin did not destroy human dignity. Wonder of wonders, human sin did not destroy human dignity. So I found um, in our kind of coin box that we've got, uh, I looked for the grimiest quarter I could find, and it's this guy right here. Uh, this, this one, has, he's got a story to tell. He has had a rough go of it. He has probably been dropped who knows how many times. There's a smudge that goes back to whenever, 1986. Uh, so this thing has been through it. It is tarnished. All, the, all those crisp edges that you're supposed to have on the, on the ridge, it's just all smoothed out. The shine is gone. The ridges are smooth. Guess how much this worn, worn out quarter is worth? 25 cents. In 1986, when it was brand new and shining, it was worth 25 cents. And now, after it's got a long story to tell and smudges from who knows where, it's still worth 25 cents, not five cents and not nothing. It's worth 25 cents. Sometimes when theologians speak of the doctrine of total depravity or of human depravity, you get the impression that fallen humans are utterly worthless in the eyes of God now that we've sinned. Wrong. That's wrong. If God's image is indelible, human dignity is indelible. So then we have to prove the major premise, right? Which is the question, is God's image indelible? And if you keep reading Genesis, we're gonna eventually get to Genesis chapter nine. This is after the fall. This is after sin has gotten to such a fever pitch, we had to flood the earth and start all over again. After all of that sin, piles and piles of human sin, God gives this command and he says these words, if someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life, why? It's the foundation of that idea. Whoever sheds human blood by humans, his blood will be shed. For God made humans in his image. And you think, wait, we still bear the image? Even after the fall, even after all of this sin, you realize the coin has lost its luster, but it hasn't lost its worth. Its worth is not diminished. The dignity is indelible because the image is still there and the image is glorious. You might say, Matt, I've made choices that I deeply regret. Friend, the dignity 
is indelible. You might say, if you knew who I am or you knew what I've done, if people knew that, they'd cross the street and walk on the other side to get away from me. The dignity is indelible. The worth is indelible. Christians, we are the people who find the people who feel disowned by God. And we say, let me tell you your origin story. We were kings. We were made by God. You are loved by God. You are known by God. You belong to God. This God not only claimed you at the start by right of creation, he sent his son to die for you so that he might reclaim you by right of redemption so that you might belong to him again by faith in Jesus Christ and belong to him forever. You will belong to him forever by coming to him and trusting in Jesus, his son, so that you could then come before him into his presence with singing. There's a song about this in Psalm 100. Come into his presence with rejoicing. And it says, know that the Lord is God. He made us and we are his, the people of his pasture. We can come in and we don't have anything to hide. We don't have anything to fear. The book of Hebrews talks to people who have sinned against God, but who have put their trust in Christ. And it says, come in with your heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and your bodies washed with pure water. That was you this morning singing to your savior, washed clean. <laughs> Story of humanity is complicated, right? It started out when we were kings and the kings were deceived and became slaves. And every page of, from Genesis three forward is singing the good news that God hasn't given up the story. God hasn't given up the story. Can I say to you this morning, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've been into, no matter how far you've strayed, you're not too far gone. God can find you. Can I ask you this morning? You wanna be found? Would you like to be found by the God who makes all things beautiful? What, what would you do if you knew that when God finds you, he makes all things new? It's what he's been doing since day one. He says to his people in 1 Peter chapter two, you know what you are now that you've put your trust in Jesus? Chosen. He picked you. Chosen generation. You're royalty. You're a royal priesthood. The best thing, the hero figures you can find in the Old Testament, they were kings and priests. He said, you're royals. You're royal priests. You're a holy nation. He's claimed you as his own special people, his own special possession that you might proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And then once we've come to him, he says, I'm going to invite you to work in my kingdom, in the fields of my kingdom, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with more people who have been restored in the image of Christ. Join me. Work with me. In Christ, by the spirit, through the church, God is reclaiming his image and carrying forward his purpose to fill the earth with his glory. God meant to fill the earth with his glory by filling the earth with his image, by filling the earth with image bearers. 
One implication, there are two implications for that. One we'll unpack in a couple of weeks. One implication is for Christian homes. For a husband and a wife, in faithfulness to God and to one another, to be fruitful and multiply, and as the Lord blesses, they increase, and they shepherd that generation. They transfer the faith within that Christian home for God's glory. There's another implication, not just for the Christian home, but for the church itself. Jesus rises from the dead, and he tells his disciples, he gathers them up, and he tells them, in a, in a sense, he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth through the proclamation of the gospel. Every time we recite the Great Commission, there's a sense in which we're going all the way back to how it started. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Through our gospel witness, people are born into the kingdom and are called sons and daughters. And the image is being multiplied and propagated to the ends of the earth. And we are subduing and we are taking thoughts captive to obey Christ. And the story ends much like where it began. The day will come when the picture of how it started and the picture of how it's going will be beautifully merged because the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. And the reason the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord is because the new Jerusalem will be filled with image bearers. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and scripture says, and we will rule with him. You were designed to rule and you will rule again. That's where life is going. That's where history's headed. Friends, ditch our culture's favorite hero story of self-discovery and self-obsession and dive into the purpose for which you were created.